Hello everyone, and welcome to Shot Reverse Shot, and uh, part three of our Alternate 100 uh, series, where we attempt to uh, catalogue 100 amazing films that perhaps don't get talked about in other famous lists. Uh, if you don't want to know what those lists are, go back and I'm not. I'm, we get, I'm getting bored of saying this stuff now. Ed. It's <laughs> just like you know, just you know what it is. If you're choosing it at part three and you haven't listened to the other two, then you're an idiot. Yeah, I think that people should know by now, uh, they should know what it's about, and uh, they should also know what our, our lovely jingle sounds like. Yes. Um, um, yeah, let's hear it. The Alternate 100. Um, we've had 20 great films so far, um, and the first one of our third episode, uh, so... Film 21, if you will. Um, oh, it's one of my all-time favourite films. Uh, it's Samuel Fuller's Shot Corridor. What's that? The sign of the invisible empire. That's a cyclos from the Greek word kouklos. means circle. This baptises a new organisation. The Ku Klux. Sounds good. No. Ku Klux Klan. Sounds more mysterious, more menacing, more alliterative. Ku Klux Klan. Say it. Ku Klux Klan. KKK. KKK. It'll catch on quick. Ostensibly a B movie with a, the most pulpy plot you could imagine, uh, in which a journalist um, decides to solve a murder uh, committed in a insane asylum by himself getting himself committed. Um, what could possibly go wrong? Um, but uh, a film that is written and shot with such kind of verve and originality that it really does tra- transcend that whole B-movie idea and um, kind of just blows blows the whole kind of uh, thing apart, which is what Samuel Fuller did. Yeah, I think if uh, anyone doesn't know Samuel Fuller is and wanted to get a sense of what his, his work kind of was, I think uh, Shot Corridor is a good introduction because, as you say, it's a... A pulpy B movie in which a guy checks himself into an insane asylum, which starts and ends with a quote from Euripides: mm. uh, "Whom God wishes to destroy, he first makes mad." Mm. Uh, and so, so you can kind of see that he's kind of like a tabloid filmmaker in a way, in that he likes to delve into the the muck and to kind of stir things up. But he also has this kind of very keen intellectual interest in kind of talking about really controversial issues, which you can see very plainly in, in Shot Corridor. Yeah, I mean, he was a newspaper man himself, wasn't he? He was a, he was a beat writer. Um, he, you know, went to World War II and famously kind of uh, wrote about his experiences and turned them into a film, the the, the film The Big Red One, which is uh, another marvellous Samuel Fuller film. I mean, all his films are, are pretty great on some level. Um, but, yeah, like you say, he, he's not afraid to kind of uh, touch on incredibly sensitive issues. I mean, this film was made in, I think, 1963. Three, I'm gonna say. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, um, and yeah, there's uh, bits about uh, the Confederacy, bits about segregation, um, bits about the mental health system, and there's you know, unlike other B movies that were kind of perhaps uh, knocked out quickly or uh, you know just done without much thought, 
this film kind of breaks down into like some great scene by scene kind of moments, but then also these kind of really kind of powerful monologues delivered by the inmates when he's when uh, the main character is trying to ascertain the kind of innocence or guilt of certain parties. Yeah, he's uh, the, the the film kind of that is structured around his interviews with these three. Uh, patients who were the witnesses to the crime and he tries to kind of break through their madness to figure out who it was who was responsible for killing another patient and there's kind of a social commentary thing in that each of them have been driven mad by kind of things that were a huge part of American society there's one man who uh, was driven mad by his experiences in the war you know he was a Korean prisoner of war and he was uh, brainwashed and then he came back and then he was deprogrammed and now believes himself to be a confederate general as a black man who's uh, been driven so mad by racism he now believes himself to be a member of the Ku Klux Klan and another man who is a scientist who's been driven mad by the threat of nuclear war and I think what's interesting is the film's made in 1963 but all of those things and particularly sort of racism and the war are two things that would very soon kind of boil over and tear America apart so the film is kind of taps in to the zeitgeist of what was underneath the surface years before it would kind of be mainstream to consider those issues. Mm. I would like to point out to listeners here that earlier I said it, the film touched on issues, and the first thing I said was the Confederacy. Now, I did mean the Korean War, but I said the Confederacy, and Ed is going to edit this episode, and I'd like you to leave this in as a, as a kind of monument to my stupidity. That <laughs> I confused the Korean War... Uh, which was uh, had just finished uh, in 1963, or was was not far finished, um, uh, and the Confederacy of the United States of America, which was an altogether different war and time. No, yeah, well, to be to be fair, there is a man who believes himself to be a member of the Confederate Army in it. So, okay, that's no excuse. No excuse. <laughs> Uh, I'm stupid, everyone. I, I apologise. Um, but uh, yeah, do you think it's uh, Samuel Fuller's best film? It's it's my favourite of his. It's certainly a lot of fun. I think something like uh, probably Pick Up on South Street is probably his best in terms of sheer enjoyment and the melding of kind of uh, the melding of, sort of social commentary about paranoia about communism to something that's a really kind of strong noir plot. Mm. Um, but this one is is kind of his most is his definitely it's his pulpiest and it's his most audacious because obviously there's scenes of uh, hallucinations in there which are constructed largely from footage he shot for other films. He, there's one where he uh, he shot footage for a film that he made in Japan that didn't get used and then there was another one where he went to, I think, Brazil and they never actually made that film but he managed to work some of it in as a, as a sign of the main character's madness. Uh, and obviously there's a great sequence in which uh, the main character has a complete break from reality and he imagines that it's raining indoors, which is uh, just kind of really, it, it is just so kind of bold, uh, a move in a film that otherwise is kind of tied to reality. It has this just kind of huge sequence in which they destroy everything on screen. Mm. Yeah, you could definitely tell they shot that last <laughs> that bit. <laughs> uh, that set weren't coming back. Um, if anyone wants to know more about Samuel Fuller, um, and he's got a, like, a wealth of work, uh, that you can investigate and an absolutely fascinating character. Um, there is a documentary about him called The Typewriter, The Rifle and The Movie Camera, um, which is uh, presented by Tim Robbins and uh, um, you know, he interviews uh, 
uh, Samuel Fuller himself and um, uh, has featured talking heads of his biggest fans, people like Quentin Tarantino. Um, and it's most of that you can find on YouTube. Um, so, yeah, I'd recommend watching that. I'd also recommend if you can pick up the Samuel Fuller double case, uh, the DVD or the Blu-ray, I think, uh, comes with uh, the film Naked Kiss, which is a very good companion piece to Chuck Corridor. The actress Constance Towers is in both films. Also, if uh, if anyone is not sold on Shock Corridor, and you should have been by now, because I think it's, it's an absolutely brilliant film, uh, Peter Breck, who's the star in it, gives probably the most exhausting performance I've ever seen in a film. <laughs> he, he spends about 50% of the film screaming, contorting, mm. or yeah. fighting. Have you not seen Uncle Buckhead? <laughs> because, you know, John Candy runs in close. Um, but yeah, oh man, I've ruined our next film, Uncle Buck. Uh, <laughs> it's not our next film, um, but yeah, Shot Corridor there. But our next film is, is not um, Uncle Buck. It's a film that is almost as good, but not quite. Um, it's uh, Tom McCarthy's The Station Agent. How you doing? Fine. Do you sell coffee? Cafe con leche. How special. You'll love it, trust me. Okay. I also got hot dogs and muffins. You live around here? Never seen you around. Where are you from? Hoboken. No shit. I live in Manhattan, dude. Wow, so why are you out here? Work? Family? Just like. How much do I owe you for the coffee? Uh, oh shit! Uh, sorry, <laughs> it's a buck. I think we're going to be hard pressed to find a more charming film on our on our list, Ed. Yeah, it is kind of charm personified, and mainly in the form of uh, Bobby Carnavale, who may be the most charismatic man who's ever lived. <laughs> the most enthusiastic, uh, the, the, the character who will win you over by sheer force of personality and enthusiasm. As he does to Peter Dinklage in the, in the film itself. Uh, yeah, The Station Agent is, is a wonderful film, and, and what's really great about it is that it has the ingredients to be awful contained mm. in it, in the... Like a lot of indie films, it's about a guy who's kind of emotionally very distant who goes to a small town and he meets these kind of funny characters and he has kind of personal revelations. But I think what sets it apart, what sets a lot of uh, Tom McCarthy's work apart, is that he treats all of it with a real earthy naturalism that prevents it from becoming kind of insufferably quirky. Mm. Um, it has that kind of mid-2000s kind of indie darlings checklist, doesn't it? Uh... Uh, uh, Patricia Clarkson, Bobby Cannavale, um, Peter Dinklage. Uh, you kind of uh, expect it to tick the boxes, but it kind of, every time it takes you down a certain narrative road, it kind of takes a right turn somewhere else. Yeah, it, it does have that also that thing there where it feels more like a collection of vignettes with interesting characters than necessarily something that's kind of a single story. Mm. But those characters are so kind of fully realised and they are so interesting to kind of hang out with that I think it, it more than makes up for that and also has uh, in retrospect has kind of things like John Slattery showing up who obviously now is a much bigger deal because of Mad Men and a very early very uh, charming performance by Michelle Williams who was still just fresh off off, uh, off Dawson's Creek then We have the superpowers of Dawson's Creek's Ballwalk Empire Game of Thrones and Mad Men all in one place yeah, I think if, if if you watch any of those shows, you may or may not like uh, Station Agents. I don't know what you like. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, it does have this kind of, this this group of actors who are all, at the time, were really great. Like, Peter Dinklage was always, has always been a really strong actor, but obviously in the years since then, 
uh, those people have all gone to great success and uh, deservedly so. It's the the first film that Peter Dinklage actually had the lead in, um, or first kind of significant kind of crossover here. He's been someone who'd been in kind of uh, supporting roles his entire career practically. Uh, and when you're uh, when you have dwarfism, your roles are quite limited, and uh, it's a refreshing lead uh, for him to play. And he, he really doesn't disappoint, even though he is someone. Uh, the character is someone that is, just wants to be left alone and is, uh, by his very nature, a kind of uh, hermit of not many words. Yeah, I think it's it's very interesting because, you know, if you listen to interviews with Peter Dinklage, he talks about how he would turn down roles because they would try and play up, you know, the fact that he has dwarfism and he would turn down roles. Like, people would obviously approach him and say, oh, play a leprechaun or something, mm. and he would turn them down, obviously, because he didn't want to be defined by that. And I think what's interesting about Station Agent is it really plays into the fact that he has dwarfism by really making it about his experience. You know, it, it does a, a lot to kind of show that people who make fun of him for it, you know, it doesn't hide the fact that there are people who will make fun of people for being different. Uh, and it really kind of makes it about an outsider's perspective. Mm. Uh, and I think it, it's a really smart bit of writing that at the beginning you see uh, sort of these kids making fun of him so as soon as you see Bobby Carnavale just like sees him and instantly wants to be his friend mm. and Patricia Clarkson kind of wants to make amends with him because she accidentally run, nearly runs him down in her car twice mm. uh, you know that they're good people straight away because they're just not being they're not sort of dicks to him and they just want to kind of get to know him there's a great bit isn't there where uh, they all sit down for their first dinner and, and, and Clarkson and and um... Dinklage don't want to be there, but Cannavale's kind of making this effort to cook this uh, Cuban meal, and um, he sits down and he just looks at Peter Dinklage and he's like, "Do you people have a club?" And his face just kind of like uh, you know drops, and Clarkson's just like really mortified, and and Cannavale's like, you know, a club for people who like trains, and oh, without yeah. without missing a beat, and it's uh, it's that lovely childlike way that he just doesn't see Dinklage as being any different. He just he wants a friend. You also see that in the scenes where. Peter Dinklage is going to walk the rails and look at trains. Mm. And Peter, and Bobby Carnival, he says, uh, as soon as he gets told that's what happens, he's, can I come? Mm. And, he just, <laughs> and he's just, you know, he he's talked about the idea of just what, waiting for a train to show up as being really boring. Mm. But then as soon as one shows up, he's cheering. and just <laughs> kind of, He's so, so happy to see a train. Mm. Um, yeah, and it's just, it is so winning. And I think a large part of that is just because Bobby Carnival, he, he wears down everyone on the film and pretty much everyone watching it as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, a wonderful, delightful film, uh, Station Agent. Tom McCarthy followed that up with The Visitor, didn't he, which is a film that so easily could have made this list. Um, um, but no one seems to have seen it. Yeah, which is strange because that was one that, you know, this one, uh, Station Agent won a BAFTA for screenplay. Mm. Uh, and uh, Station Agent was nominated for an Oscar for leading actor for Richard Jenkins. Which I think yeah. got it a bit of attention at the time, but it doesn't really get talked about much. And that is another film that, again, sounds like it could be terrible because, you know, a university professor who meets a, an, a, a couple of the illegal immigrants living in his apartment and then becomes friends with them and discovers Afrobeat drumming. But it's actually, <laughs> it's actually a really, really lovely and kind of life-affirming film. Mm. But yeah, it's heartbreaking. I don't know if you remember how this ends. Oh, I do remember how this <laughs> ends, yeah. It's, yeah. It is. 
is a lot sadder than Station Agent, which has mm. moments of, of sadness in it as well because the characters in it are all kind of uh, have some sort of tragedy in their lives. Uh, but you know, the, it's still you know is so so sweet and, and lovely. Yeah, and the uh, first of two films that we're going to feature in this list that feature Peter Dinklage. So stay tuned. I know what that second one might be. Uh, our next film we're going to speak about tonight is one that's talked about readily in cult circles, but very rarely in proper circles. Not that this is a proper circle. This is well, it's not even a circle, really. It's just us two talking. Um, but yeah, Escape from New York uh, is the film we're going to talk about. New York, 1997. The entire city is a walled maximum security prison. The bridges are mined. The rivers are patrolled. And the United States police force has everything under control, they think. Uh, a film that's very easily bracketed into that cult movie Ghetto. Um, but um, I think people forget, A, how good it is on a basic level, uh, and B, how influential it is, particularly in the fact that uh, pretty much every anti-hero since has just tried to be Snake Plissken. Yeah, I was thinking it's a it's a film that's so iconic that its poster inspired another film. Exactly, because, yeah. Because the image of uh, of Kurt Russell kind of sitting on top of the severed head of the Statue of Liberty was a direct influence on the opening of Cloverfield. Mm. Uh, you know, I think that that is that speaks to the image of it that people look at that film and there's so much that you can kind of take away and use to influence other films in general. Yeah, um, it's. Set in 1997, which when they made the film uh, back in 1981, I think, probably did seem like quite a long way away. Uh, now, obviously, 1997 is nearly 20 years ago. Um, it didn't quite transpire to be like the events of Escape from New York. Um, I, I, I mean, I'm trying to think of what happened in 97. I mean, uh, the Verve had a record out. Uh, I did my GCSEs, uh, showing me age there. Um, yeah, I can't really remember... Uh, New York being a kind of walled city. No, I remember someone phoning up my school and telling that people that a nuclear bomb was going to go off. Wow, that's but I think I think that was because it was the also the time that lined up with the date when the the war with the machines was meant to start in Terminator Two. So I think uh. people were just kind of playing into that. Uh, but yes, uh, of the things that happened in 1997, uh, New York becoming a prison was uh, not one of them, except in maybe an existential sense, um, as uh, as Andre Gregory talked about in uh, My Dinner with Andre. Um, no, it, it, it obviously, you know, if you look at it that way, it's it's silly to think that 16 years from when the film was made <laughs> that New York would become a, a, just essentially an isolated prison. But as we talked about with the Warriors, it's something that in 1981... I think was only a slight exaggeration of what people thought would happen with the city because there was, you know, it was riddled with crime and there was lots of urban decay and it, it had all of these uh, problems that uh, Rudy Giuliani managed to fix uh, with his broken window stuff. Yeah. Um, and uh, I think that it, it says something about the kind of the social situation that this film, which in hindsight looks insane, you know, 30 odd years later looks like a crazy idea was something that seemed perfectly reasonable at the time. Mm. Uh, do you think that uh, Snake Plissken, uh, the anti-hero 
I mean, obviously there have been anti-heroes before. Um, I suppose Travis Bickle's quite a big one. But Pliskin is the one that I think people try and emulate more. He's a little lighter <laughs> in tone than, uh, than Mr. Bickle. Um, and he's got a rad eye patch. Um, but do you think he's he's the one that, that the kind of lazy screenwriters tend to fall back on? Yeah, because the the film I think has the right level of seriousness about its you know in terms of realizing its world. Mm. But then Snake Plissken himself is quite a sardonic, sarcastic kind of guy who enjoys making gags and kind of fucking with people. Mm. Uh, and I think that that is something that when people think of an anti-hero, they think of someone who does the right thing for you know possibly the wrong reason, but also the idea of someone who is just kind of a dick but he's on your side so that makes him kind of charming um features a really great use of uh, kind of old school character actors in supporting parts in uh, in the film you get people like Ernest Borgnine and Lee Van Cleef showing up um it kind of really adds a flavor and, and a nod to those films that uh um John Carpenter so loved to kind of uh reference when he made his kind of 70s 80s action films he was always giving a nod to the the 50s 60s westerns um so it's really nice to see people like that turn up yeah and often in very fun roles like Ernest Borgnine has a real blast playing a cabbie who's just driving uh plisking around New York and kind of gets wrapped up in the the action kind of incidentally mm. uh, I think that one of uh, John Carpenter's great strengths as a writer was he was very good at kind of writing these very colourful side characters who could really liven up the either the exposition or just kind of the scenes in between set pieces. Mm. Yeah. Um, it doesn't disappoint on the action front either, does it? It's uh, uh, It kind of delivers there. Oh, definitely, yeah. Particularly in the sort of last half hour or so as they're trying to get out of the city and time is ticking for Snake's uh, explosive neck kind of thing. It's, it's just a, a very well paced and it's got a great sense of tension. Um, I think uh, fact fans, uh, James Cameron works in the special effects for this film. Uh, I believe he did a lot of the kind of 3D visaging, or did the or did was it the the hang glider that Kurt Russell arrives in? I think he was like doing the miniatures and stuff for that. Yeah, that that definitely sounds like the sort of work he was doing in his days post uh, Piranha Two. Mm. Pre, pre-Terminator. Yeah, just like to say, I haven't fact-checked that, so it could be bullshit. But, um, <laughs> sounds fine. Yeah. That's, that's yeah, it sounds right, it's fine. Um, it's good enough for us. Um, our next film uh, is the film that put me off travelling on the tube forever. Mm-hmm. Uh, the film is American Werewolf in London. I want you to meet some people. David Kessler, this is Gerald Bringsley. Gerald's the man you murdered on the subway. We thought it best for you not to see him, as he's a fresh kill and still pretty messy. Yes. I do look most unpleasant. Why are you doing this to me? This isn't Mr. Goodman's idea. He's your good friend. Whereas I am a victim of your carnivorous lunar activities. Similarly scared of the tube, Ed? Yeah, every time I go to London, which admittedly isn't that often nowadays. Uh, mm. it's, it's a bit of a schlep. Um... It's uh, every time I have to go down uh, one of the escalators, I just kind of wonder, I wonder if there's a giant wolf just kind of hanging out at the bottom there. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it makes very good use of the claustrophobia of the of the tube tunnels and the fact that they have so many 
sheer 90 degree turns. Mm, yeah. <laughs> Which are great for a horror film. Yeah. Uh, it's a horror film and a film that is often remembered for its um, special effects. Uh, but we should say that it is a incredibly funny. Uh, mm. It's a, it's a comedy. Everyone knows that. Um, it starts in very comedic uh, fashion. Um, even though one of the main characters dies and the other is critically injured um, and turned into werewolf. Spoiler. Um, but also, um, it's incredibly weird. Mm. Some of the ideas that happen in there, particularly the lead character's dream sequences or the dream within a dream that feature his uh, family, uh, kind of a family dinner, get-together, being slaughtered by mutant Nazis. Um that's pretty dark, man. Yeah, it's a pretty dark film. I think uh, one of the things I, I like about it is that it is kind of a perfect horror comedy and that the, the horror aspect of it and the special effects are really kind of gruesome and disturbing. But the jokes, particularly the first half, when it's making fun of Americans going to England and kind of being displaced and, you know, feeling isolated, mm. are, are, are legitimately very funny and it has a very kind of jovial uh people on a kind of a road trip kind of feel to it. And But when your two characters are introduced by riding in the back of a, a truck with sheep, mm-hmm. uh, or lambs, you could say, uh, which is, uh, you know, that's a pretty goddamn funny way of introducing two characters who are about to be killed. Yeah, and then obviously going into a pub called The Slaughtered Lamb. Uh, mm-hmm. John, John Landis was very good at kind of putting in kind of very funny, sardonic and ironic uh, background details, sort of in his heyday. Um, yeah. I think that, you know, if you want a kind of a, a sense of the two halves of the film kind of coming together beautifully, I think it, it, it's represented by Griffin Dunn's kind of slowly decaying face, mm. where it's funny because he's saying very funny things, and he's being very kind of uh, kind of laid back about the fact that he's been brutally killed, uh, but it's also really disgusting because as the film goes along, his face does get really messed up and horrible. Mm. Um, and it's notable for its soundtrack. Uh, every mm-hmm. song that's featured on the soundtrack uh, features the word moon, uh, and they uh, play it for well for comedic effect because they would, wouldn't they? Yeah, again, that comes into John Landis's idea of I think he's someone who tried to kind of make sort of holistic comedies where every aspect of it could be every kind of aspect of filmmaking could be used to play a gag in a similar way to people like, uh, you know, Edgar Wright or uh, Phil Lord and Chris Miller, they're, they're kind of, you can kind of see them as his natural uh, inheritors of that mantle. Mm. Uh, I suppose you can't mention the film without talking about the transformation scene, which mm. um, still holds up effects-wise and kind of power-wise, even though, and it's all practical effect. Uh, those of you who haven't seen it, what the fuck's wrong with you? Watch it. But, uh, yeah, it's all done practically... Uh, with kind of anim- animatronic gizmos and and you know just effect- well good filmmaking we'll call it um, still powerful still gross yeah it really is uh, I think also that it helps that the the lead actors kind of he really sells in his performance mm. you really get the set it, it also does something which I think a lot of uh, a lot of monster movies have done since and not that many did before the idea of presenting the transformation as something incredibly painful. Mm. Because it does seem like he's being put through the ringer as his body kind of metamorphosizes around him. Yeah, it's the it's the cracking of the vertebrae that gets me every mm. time. 
great sound design. Um, going to have a little bit of foreign muck now uh, on our on our list. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, Takeshi Katano's uh, Sonatine. Katano, uh, or Beat Takeshi, if you're uh, familiar with his more comedic work, um, has made many films uh, kind of set around the kind of uh, Yakuza milieu. Uh, why have we chosen Sonatine when there are so many other good ones? Uh, I think it's it's kind of the first real kind of realisation of his style, because he'd made two, he'd made three films before, he'd made Violent Cop, uh, mm. which is a very accurate title, uh, and and uh, boiling point. Um, Violent Cop. He was kind of a. He was the star, and then the the director was ill, and he just kind of stepped in. So it wasn't really. That was just kind of him getting the feel for it. Boiling Point feels more like his sort of work, but still conforms to sort of the tropes of uh, of sort of the Yakuza genre. It's 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 pretty much violent from start to finish. Uh, whereas I think Sonatine is the first one of his Yakuza films that really feels like him and that it has his kind of, why I consider his, uh, his drop, uh, his, uh, deadpan brutality mm. in that he has these moments that are incredibly violent and disturbing, but they're played with almost no, uh, affect. You know, there'll be things like at one point early on, they drown a guy and they're lowering him into the water from a crane and the camera just kind of holds on him, barely moves and then cuts back to the face of, Takeshi Kitano, not the most expressive of actors anyway, but just mm. kind of watching this thing and showing no reaction. And then after he drowns, just saying, boy, we killed him. Mm. And I think that kind of sums up his approach to violence and that he prevents it in this way, which is incredibly matter-of-fact and hardly sensationalised at all. And I think that kind of is really on full effect, on full display in Sonity. Yeah, it's uh, also a film that... Uh, deals with Takeshi Kitano's other preoccupation, which is presenting the Yakuza when they're not being Yakuza. Mm. Um, and there's a you know, memorable sequence in Sonatine where, obviously, they spend most of the film on the lamb for uh, something, I can't remember, and they go to a, a, a kind of a remote island and they just have to entertain each other uh, for a good portion of the film. And uh, my favourite bit is when they're pretending to do the kind of... Uh, the the little toy wrestlers by, you know, they're beating their fists on the ground and it goes in kind of like stop motion and they're kind of wrestling each other. Yeah, there's a, there's some bits that are very, very funny. Uh, you know, Takeshi Kitano, before he became a filmmaker, was a, a stand-up comedian and uh, to this day is is still someone who does lots of kind of popular variety programmes on Japanese television. And he's kind of like if Bruce Forsyth and Sam Peckinpah were the same person. Mm. Um and I think you can see that coming through in the, that whole middle section where the Yakuza stuff kind of falls away. Uh, it's all to do with the fact that uh, the, the plot finds Takeshi Kitano and his kind of crew being sent to resolve a, a dispute between two gang members who all kind of fall under the same uh, broader gang. And when they're there, someone tries to kill them and then they, they realise that they're being targeted for something, so they just kind of run off. 
and like you say, they just spend a lot of time hanging out on the beach together and uh, just kind of playing around. And I think you can really see there that it's kind of his version of Breathless mm. uh, because uh, Kitano, I think, is a big fan of Goddard. If, uh, if you ever see this from Boiling Point, there's a very long homage to uh, uh, Pierre Lefou in there. And I think you can kind of see that here and that it starts off as a kind of a traditional Yakuza drama with violence and all this kind of uh, complex backroom negotiation stuff. And then it just becomes this comedy about a group of people hanging out on a beach. And it's really funny. Mm. Um, he was on quite a trot, wasn't he, in the 90s, um, uh, Katano? But he kind of just fell away. Uh, and he, the, his Yakuza stuff... Definitely got weaker when he kind of tried to do the American crossover, the film Brother, which is, mm. I, I think, probably his worst film, I think. Uh, I'm not seeing that sort of trilogy he did after it, the sort of self-reflexive uh, filmmaking trilogy. Apparently that one's quite good. Mm. Uh, but I did see his two most recent film, Outrage and Beyond Outrage, which are two very straightforward computer films that I really don't. Right. But they have some really inventive kills in it. There's no, there's no, none of this kind of his uh, his eccentricities. Uh, my own personal theory as to why he fell off is I think that is because he fell out with Joe Hisaishi, who was his longtime composer and who also did all the music for yeah Miyazaki's films. Right. And I think if you watch his films, the music plays a big part in establishing their tone. Because if you watch the uh, if you watch Sonatine. And it's like more conventional music that, like, really dramatic. The film would be a lot less interesting. Whereas his music kind of emphasizes the sadness to it. Because it's filmed, I think, was in, was very heavily influenced by Takeshi's, uh, by, by Kitano's uh, depression. Because at the time he was very, very depressed, uh, and he uh, had a, a near-death experience not long after when he crashed his motorbike, and that kind of really influenced sort of the last the, the, the films made in the late 90s mm. uh, when his films get a little more hopeful because I think he kind of worked through a lot of things uh, I think that that music plays a huge part in establishing a really a really kind of mournful playful tone mm. uh, and his later films have really kind of traditional st- scores and they just feel a lot less interesting mm. Yeah, it's not often you think that a uh, creative relationship uh, dissolving um, would be between, uh, and having such a big effect on someone's work would be between a director and a composer. Uh, it would be normally, you know, someone who would be seen much more uh, involved in the creation process rather than the uh, the post-production process. Um, but it, I think it just goes to show that people work differently and he was probably considering everything he was doing whilst the film was being made, and, and their their relationship was kind of symbiotic. Yeah, I get the feeling that it would be like, if you imagine that John Williams and Steven Spielberg had had a falling out in the, like, the late 70s, mm. uh, I think that a lot of Spielberg's films would be, able, would be very different if other people had composed them. Like if E.T., you know, famously, he, he really cut scenes in E.T. to match the music that John Williams composed. Uh, and I kind of get the feeling that the relationship between and Hisiashi was, was very, very close, and that when they had their, when they fell out, it, it really kind of uh, affected the way Katana worked. Mm, sure. Imagine like Jaws with a Trent Reznor score. Ooh, actually, that that could be quite interesting. That's a crossover waiting to happen. Someone make it, make it so. And um, that's a live, that's a live scoring uh, event that needs to happen. Yeah, opportunity. 
Um, okay, cool. Um, if you're playing along at home with the uh, famous shot, reverse shot uh, drinking game, uh, take a drink because we're going to talk about the 70s and how great they were. <laughs> um, here we're talking about uh, the first buddy movie on our list uh, thus far. Uh, we're going to talk about Michael Cimino's Thunderbolt and Lightfoot. Glory to God in the highest, and on earth, peace and goodwill towards men. Amen. Michael Cimino is a, is a director who is uh, kind of stuck with... The Deer Hunter, and I say that in obviously it's a you know big Oscar-winning film, and you know some people like it. I'll level with you. I don't particularly care for The Deer Hunter. I think it's quite melodramatic, and I think a little bit overrated. Um, yeah, I don't care for it much either. It's it, I find it uh, horribly self-important in a way that the film can't quite uh, stand. Hmm. Well, I'm glad we're on the same page here. Um, but Thunderbolt and Life was great. It is. It's it's easily my favourite of his films. Uh, I think it's it's the one on which his kind because of, he's a even though I think that his later films are or at least the two films he made immediately afterwards, The Deer Hunter and Heaven's Gate, are really overlong and badly paced and kind of dull. Mm. They are stunningly made. Like he's an amazing craftsman and he had a real eye. And I think that on Thunderbolt and Lightfoot, that sort of skill is connected to a story that is incredibly fast-paced. It's incredibly funny, uh, because it's a, a buddy movie between uh, Clint Eastwood and, and Jeff Bridges, who are obviously kind of two very diametrically opposed kind of attitudes. Uh, but it's not allowed to get overindulgent, which I understand is largely because Clint Eastwood would only do two or three takes, and then would just be like, yeah, we've got it, and he wouldn't let Chimino sh- uh, shoot more. So uh, I guess basically what that teaches us is that Chimino needed to cast Clint Eastwood in the subsequent two films we made. Yeah, I mean, I think personally, Clint Eastwood in the uh, Russian roulette scene in Deer Hunter, <laughs> but then doing the uh, Do You Feel Lucky punk <laughs> bit before every shot would be pretty awesome. Um, but yeah, uh, in terms of buddy comedies, chemistry between uh, Clint Eastwood, who was uh, perhaps just coming out of his... Uh, you know, being biggest star in the world phase, um, and kind of moving into being a slightly different, more different filmmaker and 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 screen presence. And Jeff Bridges, who was right at the very start of his career, and was on an incredible run of form. Uh, with basically just kept making masterpiece after masterpiece. Yeah, because uh, Eastwood would have only just started directing. He would have been uh, playing Misty for me a few years before, mm. and obviously he was starting to to make those sort of films. But he had also just done. Uh, you know, Dirty Harry, and this is in some ways it kind of plays into his persona because he's obviously gruff and taciturn. Because I don't think he can really do much other than be gruff and taciturn, which isn't a, a fault on him. You know, he has his he has his his uh, his mode, and he's very good within it. Uh, and that obviously is very different to Jeff Bridges, who's obviously so kind of laid back and exceptionally kind of seventies. Yeah. Um... It's lovely to see uh, those kind of people who grew up like I did watching The Naked Gun. Um, it's really awesome to see uh, like George Kennedy in kind of weighty, serious roles. Like it, when I was a kid, like he, he was just a funny guy, 
that was accidentally going through, like had someone going through his own pockets and saying, "Oh, you've got he's got a picture of your wife." Um, <laughs> but then you watch things like this in Cool Hand Luke, and remember, like he was the you know he was a big character actor back in the day. Yeah, Oscar winner as well, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, Cool Hand Luke. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. Yeah, and seeing him here as someone who's actually quite dangerous because mm. uh, in the film he's part of the gang that Clint Eastwood was part of, uh, and Clint Eastwood had been part of this group of bank robbers and the rest of his team think that he double-crossed them, and at the start of the film, he's pretending to be a preacher, mm. and one of his uh, former team members tries to kill him, and in the process gets run down by Jeff Bridges, who's a sort of a small-time crook, and they end up kind of teaming up together and going on the run. Mm. Uh, and so it's interesting seeing George Kennedy as someone who's actually quite a bit of a threat, quite, uh, quite dangerous. Um, it's a film that like makes very good use of its locations. It's a very beautifully shot, as you'd expect from Chimino film. Um, the the landscape really does bring life to the story. Yeah, it, uh, it, it definitely feels like a continuation of that thing in the seventies of people being really into road movies in the wake of uh, Easy Rider. And I think that it, it is a very good film about America as a place of kind of these great expanses where you can kind of get lost. Yeah, and uh, being a film from the 70s and that period that we like so much, it, you know, has a kind of, uh, at best melancholy, at worst, quite bleak ending. Yeah, that's just kind of what it was like in the 70s. Um, mm. Even even films that are, for 90% of their running time, quite light-hearted, will just suddenly turn around and punch you in the gut. Yeah, yeah, because that's yeah. what it was like after Nam, all right? <laughs> yeah, we get it. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, next film uh, is well, it's not made in the seventies, but it's one of those pro- prototype new Hollywood films, um, and it's also B movie. We've been talking about those quite a bit this um, this episode. Uh, quite an ingenious one uh, for reasons we'll get into. Um, the film Targets, directed by Peter Bogdanovich. Once upon a time, many many years ago. A rich merchant in Baghdad sent his servant to the marketplace to buy provisions. And after a while, the servant came back, white-faced and trembling, and said, Master, when I was in the marketplace, I was jostled by a woman in the crowd, and I turned to look, and I saw that it was death that had jostled me. And she looked at me and made a threatening gesture, Oh, master, please lend me your horse that I may ride away from this city and escape my fate. I will ride to Samara, and death will not find me there. So the merchant loaned him the horse, and the servant mounted it and dug his spurs into its flank, and as fast as the horse could gallop, he rode towards Samara. Then the merchant went to the marketplace and he saw Death standing in the crowd and he said to her, Why did you make a threatening gesture to my servant when you saw him this morning? And Death said, I made no threatening gesture. That was was only a start of surprise. I was astonished to see him here in Baghdad. I have an appointment with him tonight in Samara. A film that is uh, the first one we're going to talk about in the 100 that has any kind of connection with uh, Roger Corman. Mm. Um, Roger Corman, the great B-movie empresario who would 
you know, famously gave breaks to people like Bogdanovich and Coppola and Scorsese and some of those guys who, who did some stuff. Um, uh, he famously gave Peter Bogdanovich uh, a crew, a star in Boris Karloff, and as much footage as he wanted from uh, a film that he'd made a few years earlier called The Terror, um, which starred Boris Karloff and just said, you know, do your worst. And what turned out is a quite ingenious uh, um, little kind of thriller. Yeah, it's it because on the one hand he has all this stuff which is Bogdanovich, who also acts in the film, playing a uh, is he a film critic? He's a film director. Film director, that's it. Yeah, he's a film director who wants Boris Karloff uh, to be in a film that he's making. And Karloff is, you know, he's an old uh, sort of horror movie actor who doesn't want to be in these these new films because he sort he doesn't really understand kind of the horror now, and he prefers the kind of the classical style that he worked in. Mm. Uh, and so there's that side of it in which it's very clearly kind of a, a case of filmmaking as a work of criticism in terms of those using someone who has a very uh, clearly established and, and, and iconic um, persona to comment on what's happening now and then the other half of the film is uh, you know all about this guy who is a, a sniper you know he's a, he's a regular guy who just kind of snaps one day takes a sniper rifle and just goes out on a, on a shooting spree. Mm. It doesn't forget that it's a B-movie, though, and the, mm. the, the sniper elements is very sensationalist, drawn on, you know, the real-life events of a few years previous with the, the Texas University sniper shooting. Uh, was it uh, Charles Whitman, the name of the, the perpetrator of that particular uh, crime? Yeah, I think that's correct. Yeah, yeah he basically scaled a bell tower, just a, you know, normal all-American guy and started popping... Uh, popping caps in people um, uh, and you know I think the film knows what it's doing uh, where it brings that in but the way they fuse those two elements together and the way they use the footage from the terror um, you know really does uh, display Mr Bordanovich's uh, potential because he went on to do some good stuff some exceptionally good stuff it's quite an interesting companion piece to something like Ed Wood where you're watching uh, a similar kind of relationship developed between uh, a director and uh, an old star who doesn't quite understand what's going on and trying to find um, their place in the business today. Um, it was kind of Karloff's kind of swan song as well, wasn't it? Yes, I, I, he died very soon after. I think in the film he was he was he was, he was very very ill and very frail. Mm. Uh, but it, it does feel like uh, even if he had lived for quite a long time afterwards, I think mean, it would still feel like him kind of looking back on his career and, and saying bye to it with a, a final fr- a flourish, you know, kind mm. of finding a last gasp, gasp of, uh, of relevancy. Um, and it was kind of like a weird changing of the guard thing, isn't it? Like, you know, there's one icon of the past kind of passing the torch over to, to the, the, the new vanguard, although I'm probably not sure that Mr. Karloff thought that at the time. No, but there's definitely a sense of a conflict of this old style of horror, which is, you know, the, the, the gothic and the idea of these kind of classically trained actors, you know, and battling monsters or playing monsters versus the very real horror of, you know, a guy for no real reason. Uh, just deciding to go and, and murder people. And I think mm. that really comes through in, you know, the way it uses first-person sequences, you know, for the shooting. It goes inside the scope of the gun and shows people being lined up and, and shot, which uh, obviously is kind of, like, very voyeuristic and really plays into the, that idea of, of trying to get inside the head of someone who could do something like that. Mm. 
Yeah. Um, and that, yeah, in sharp contrast to the kind of literary Edgar Allan Poe style stuff that Karloff's used to do. It's a very different kind of horror. Right, we're going from the late 60s now to uh, a very different time for movie making. Um, and we're going to talk about a film uh, which people might be surprised to see in our list, but it was one of the first names on the team sheet, as they say in football. Um, the film is Beverly Hills Cop. Please get in the car, sir. Yeah, but tell me, so what's the charge? Possession of a concealed weapon disturbing the peace. Disturbing the peace? I got thrown out of a window. What's the fucking charge for getting pushed out of a moving car, huh? Jaywalking? Why on earth is this film in here, Ed? Because uh, it's great. <laughs> yeah, um, it is. You're right. It's a... Uh, right, and the next film is... Uh, <laughs> uh, right, no, it's just... It's a... Uh, it's a... Uh, that rare thing, an action comedy that's actually really, really viscerally exciting and incredibly funny. And even rarer nowadays, a funny Eddie Murphy film. Yeah, it's difficult to uh, talk to kind of younger people about Eddie Murphy. Um, the like they don't believe you when you say like he used to make films for adults mm. and he used to be good he used to be like dangerous on screen and uh, he, you know he'd done some films before and uh, I don't want to spoil things we might talk about some of those later in this series um, but Beverly Hills Cop was his you know massive crossover uh, we're going to stick him in a big action movie as a film that was um, written originally for Sylvester Stallone uh, and for some, whatever reason didn't want to do it and Eddie Murphy kind of stepped into the the breach and it became an incredibly different film and uh, a film that basically made him a global superstar. Yeah, I think it, it, people uh, forget just how huge Beverly Hills Cop was because if you remember in 1984, it was the top grossing film of 1984 and that was the year that Ghostbusters came out. Wow. So that, that's how huge of a film it was. It, it surpassed uh, his uh, fellow SNL alums uh, and I think that you know, I think it's also a sign of what a talent he was and what a force that he was in terms of, uh, not necessarily in terms of star power, though he had that in spades, uh, but in terms of, you know, you get in front of a camera and you say, you know, just go with it. Mm. And just letting him kind of improvise and kind of, you know, just try whatever he wanted in front of the camera, it radically reshaped that film in a way that... Uh, I don't think you really see, you can imagine many other stars managing to just completely reshape what a film is through the sheer force of their personality. Yeah, and even though it is that, even though there is there are bits where they've clearly said, um, you know, Eddie, let's just see what you got, the film is actually still pretty tight. Mm. It's not like watching an Adam Sandler comedy uh, where, you know, there is very little script and they just say, you know, make us laugh. Uh, he doesn't. Um, it's actually still pretty tight and narrative-wise it, it, it does drive uh, quite kind of uh, relentlessly towards where it's going. Yeah, I think that's it helps that it has a script that is not overly elaborate. It's a very, very simple, you know, detective story about a guy investigating murders. You know, that sort of basic through-line and that structure allows Murphy to kind of, you know, have fun and to really kind of play it up. Mm, absolutely. Um Got a few points about Beverly Cop. Um, I mean, my first one is that in in the wake of his kind of success as a as a children's star, uh, you know, I, I mean, I don't want to tie for legal reasons. I don't want to tie that change in making adult films, making family friendly friendly films, to the incident where he was caught with a transsexual prostitute in his car. I don't want to say that those two events are connected, um, but 
there was a bit after that where, for some reason, because he had popularity as a family entertainer, essentially, the BBC started putting Beverly Hills Cop on at six o'clock in, you know, in early evening. And it's an 18. <laughs> and in the opening five minutes, a person is shot in the, the head at point blank range. And uh, they had to cut it so ridiculously that, like, A, it was, you know, 25 minutes shorter, and B, it just didn't make any sense. Yeah, that's insane. That's, mm. yeah, I, but I think that also kind of illustrates how much his career completely shifted when you get into the mid-90s and he does, you know, Doctor Doolittle and uh, The Nutty Professor and stuff. You know, mm. he does become this someone who, someone who would occasionally do something like a bow finger, which would be... You know, interesting and, and really push himself through. Even later, when he would do something like uh, Dream Girls, where he would kind of go against his family friendly persona. Mm. But you know, uh, you get the sense that people who are like eighteen now, old enough to watch Beverly Hills Cop now, uh, you know, for him, he's uh, for them, he's uh, just a guy who makes kind of cheesy comedies. Uh, and I think that's a real shame to have lost sight of you know what a kind of firecracker he was. Mm. Um, second observation, stray observation about Beverly Hills Cop. This is a kind of serious point I'm going to bring up now. Um, the film is notable that um, the main character doesn't have a love interest, even though there is a significant female lead in the thing. And it's widely accepted um, that the reason that there is no love interest is that Eddie Murphy's a black actor, and Hollywood at the time, even still now, is kind of squeamish. Uh, about putting a black lead actor with a white leading lady, which, uh, given that this film is 20-odd years old uh, rather than 60 years old, uh, is kind of insane. Uh, I think I seem to remember, like, when the film Hitch came out and Will Smith, Will Smith, family entertainer Will Smith, actually said in, like, you know, the promotional stuff, like, they didn't want me to be copying off with a white chick, so they, Eva Mendes, she's a bit brown. Uh, stick her in there. That's kind of all right. That's mental, isn't it? It is. It's absolutely insane. And, you know, I think it's it's crazy that it still goes on now. Mm. Uh, yeah, it just it's just baffling, especially for people like Eddie Murphy and Will Smith, who are just, when you think of them, they're just these huge entertainers. And they were both at those points in uh, Beverly Hills Cop and in Hitch. They were kind of at the peak of their powers. Mm. And yet still having to cop to... The fact that, you know, the sort of things that, uh, you know, I read um, uh, Pictures Out of Revolution, the Mark Harris book about uh, the, the, the Best Picture nominees in 1967. There's a long thing in there about how uh, In the Heat of the Night uh, nearly didn't get made because the studio were afraid that they wouldn't be able to play it in the South mm. and that they'd lose a huge amount of money. And the only reason they were able to, they, they able to get a green light was because they said, we can make this cheaply enough. But it never has to play outside of, like, New York and L.A. Right. And, and, like, that was the kind of thing. And you think that, oh, my God, that sounds insane. That You'd think that a film would only get made because you think, you know what? There's, like, half a country you can't play this in because people riot and it will be, like, huge incendiary. But then mm. you hear about stuff like that and you think, that's kind of still uh, driving these decisions now. And it's kind of horrifying. Mm. And it's, yeah, it's just so... Given that, like, the the audience is so global, like, it's just so weird to see that, like, producers at the top would be so squeamish about that. If it's not going to play 
in one place, surely it's going to be fine somewhere else. I just don't. Uh, yeah, it's, it seems crazy to me that that's the case, and it's, it's based on the fear of that possibly not happening. Not like, oh God, we made all these films where a black actor copped off with a white chick, and oh, they did terribly. Do you know what I mean? It's mm. not based on any statistical data. It's just based on pure squeamishness. Yeah, you, you kind of if you imagine that, say, Jungle Fever, the uh, Spike Lee film that was made in the what nineteen nineties or the early nineties. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, and that was kind of really bold, the idea of depicting an interracial relationship in that way. And you kind of think, if you re-release that now, it still would be considered really bold. Mm. Uh, and again, horrifying. Yeah. Uh, Hollywood and the world, what the fuck is wrong with you? That's what we're saying. Yeah, SRS is calling you out. Yes, absolutely. Um, but yeah, those are all my stray observations about Beverly Hills Cop, and a bloody fine film it is too. Um, I'd say watch it, but you've all seen it. You probably saw it at six o'clock. On yeah. a on a Sunday <laughs> afternoon, but watch uh, it, watch it, watch it uncensored, and you'll finally understand what the hell's going on. Also, the Beverly Hills Cop is also the first of two films on our list that features John Ashton. Uh, for those wanting to know what the next one is, stay tuned for future episodes. Uh, and for those wondering who John Ashton is, he's the fat guy. Um, yeah, <laughs> um, the second to the penultimate film of uh, of this week's ten um, is. Weirdly, given it's not actually that old, the kind of film they just don't make anymore. Um, I'm talking about uh, broadcast news. Why don't they make them like that anymore? Uh, because it's just kind of a sort of film that is, on the one hand, very classically romantic. Mm. Not not in the sense that it's like a romance between people. There is a bit of that, but in the sense that it uh, views kind of the relationship with people with very kind of, uh, in a very positive light, mixed with a real kind of deep-rooted cynicism about uh, the way that the media is going. And I think that nowadays... Uh, you would get people trying to do one of those things, but not both. It's a film that, like for a lot of people, myself included, uh, just kind of slipped by me. It's mm. a film that, because it isn't particularly spiky or is it, it isn't particularly edgy, um, seems to have kind of like missed, like missed me. Um, but when I saw it, I was just like, why on earth are more people talking? Why aren't two people who have a podcast? Talking about it and trying to bring it to the attention of other people. And now, several years later, <laughs> yeah. it's come to fruition. Uh, yeah, I think it's because it doesn't really have any particular hook. Uh, it's just a case of going, hey, there's William Hurt, Holly Hunter and Albert Brooks, and they're in a newsroom together, uh, and that's it. But obviously there's more stuff going on there, but if you were to try and sell it to someone, I think that that has a lot less to sell it than, say, uh, like Network, like mm. the, the, the Network, Network, which we're both big fans on, of, which is more overtly kind of stylized and satire, whereas uh, Broadcast News is more of an honest-to-God kind of drama with some very strong comedic and romantic elements. Yeah, and it's not something that like didn't get recognised at the time. I mean, it got a, a flood of Oscar nominations, and it was also following uh, Mr Brooks's previous film, Turns of Endearment, which kind of cleaned up. Um, 
So, I mean, why do you think it might not have uh, achieved the kind of historical recognition that some of that terms of endearment is? Because they're quite similar in tone and kind of feel. Um, what, why do you think that is? I think because at the time it's kind of criticism of the news because it's very much about the idea of uh, style and substance kind of at war with each other was perhaps seen as uh, a slightly cynical because it does essentially say that uh, style will win out over substance in the news media. Uh, and now uh, that seems almost quaint mm. <laughs> because it kind of... Uh, it, it, and nowadays you look at it and think, oh, people thought that it was a fair fight. <laughs> and it really wasn't. Yeah. Um, and it kind of reminds you how good William Hurt is um, and uh, how lovely it is to see him in a... Uh, lead role which to now seems quaint to us because he's a very much a supporting actor now in his dotage yeah and, and also to see him playing someone who is who's kind of this sort of effortlessly charming guy uh whereas now i think you see him in films where he is there's kind of a darkness and seediness to him and uh, you know in that he's this kind of very charming leading man you know he's the the anchor who everyone kind of is really impressed by uh and only Albert Brooks kind of suggests that maybe he's not all he appears to be. Mm. Uh, and I think that maybe that kind of factors into his later persona, the idea that James L. Brooks looks at this guy and sees him as being, you know, sort of a guy who's kind of classically handsome Hollywood good looks, but also seeing that there's a potential there for him to be kind of corrupt and seedy. Yeah. Um, film directed by James L. Brooks. Um, someone who has directed three big films that kind of got a lot of recognition. This one turns to endearment, as we mentioned, and also much later, As Good As It Gets, which uh, was quite popular with the Academy. Um, also, like, you know, showrunner on The Simpsons, was he? Yeah, he was one of the original three showrunners, him, Matt Groening, and Sam Simon. And uh, he was, I don't know how involved he is now, but he was very heavily involved in the creative process of that show for a very long time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think uh, I think it's this uh, to me watching it today again was uh, I think a sign of why he works so well in terms of The Simpsons because he's seen I think as someone who's kind of a hopeless romantic I think that kind of plays out in a lot of his films you know there's a very strong kind of emphasis on people kind of like finding love or or kind of having big kind of grand realizations about themselves. But this does have kind of a, an edge of kind of cynicism about institutions and stuff. And I think that that's why he, he worked so well with, in, with Matt Groening and Sam Simon in uh, developing that show. Because I think he was able to allow his cynicism to kind of come through more fully and then still doss it with the occasional moment of genuine kind of heart and emotion. James L. Brooks also produced Bottle Rocket. He's produced quite a lot of films, uh, big um uh, then bigger films like uh, Joe Maguire. Um, but yeah, Bottle Rocket um, kind of shows he had impeccable taste. Yeah, I think he, he's definitely drawn to people who are kind of emotionally very earnest but have a very kind of uh, sardonic style to them or kind of have a, a, a ability to kind of pepper that earnestness with kind of wry observational humour, which Bottle Rocket has and Joe Maguire kind of has in spades as well. Um. Is it in any way, has it in any way informed uh, the TV show The Newsroom? Because uh, I always get uh, William Hurt and Jeff Daniels confused 
and they seem I've not seen the newsroom, but I'm going to say they are. Are you going to disagree with me? Uh, I would say that they're probably similar in terms of the backroom drama kind of stuff, and that, you know, the kind of idea of people working together and you know having relationships. But I think that is more. That was probably more from Sorkin's early show, news, uh, Sports Night, which I think also is probably uh, influenced in its own by, by broadcast news as well. So I think there's there's definitely kind of uh, elements of it kind of filter through, but broadcast news is nowhere near as hectoring as the newsroom is. As the newsroom right. is about real things, but real things in the recent past. So there's kind of an air of smug self satisfaction about it. Whereas broadcast news is more concerned with telling a real story about people who are, uh, you know, dedicated to their jobs and the effects that that job has on their personal life uh, and a genuinely kind of beautiful and sweet friendship slash semi-romantic interest between Holly Hunter and Albert Brooks, which I think is uh, one of the best realisations of kind of a lovelorn uh, kind of friendship. That I've ever seen in a film, in that Albert Brooks is clearly deeply in love with Holly Hunter, uh, and that's never really in doubt. But he also kind of is genuinely friends with her, and also kind of has his shit together. Like that's not the only thing that defines it. Mm. There's also a uh, absolutely fantastic bit where um, uh, Albert Brooks is trying not to sweat on camera, <laughs> oh, which yeah. is uh, one of the one of the uh, the film's funniest moments. It does have some nice big comedic set pieces. There's that, the bit where Joan Cusack has to run with the tape from the editing bay to put it on on air, uh, which I think is something that James O. Brooks can do really well. You can pepper something that's otherwise quite a very well-observed uh, drama slash sort of romantic drama with uh, kind of moments of kind of high comedy. Um, if we're trying to sell broadcast news... Um, to people who might not have heard of it. Imagine Anchorman without the laughs. With fewer laughs, some laughs. <laughs> Albert Brooks has some really fantastic lines in it, as you would expect, because Albert Brooks is kind of an amazing person. Yeah. And his real name's Albert Einstein. Yeah, which is, uh, you know, never fails to amuse me. Yeah. As much as Michael Keaton's real name is Michael Douglas. Yeah. I like, uh, also, uh, I never realised that Albert Brooks's brother is Bob Einstein, who is on Kirby Enthusiasm. Ah, oh, the surrogate on uh, Arrested Development. And yeah, yeah. But when, once you realise that, you kind of think, oh yeah, they do have exactly the same kind of really gruff, deep voice. Mm. Yeah, next week on the Shot Reverse Shock podcast, just us listing people and what their real names are. <laughs> um, because uh, that would be endlessly, endlessly tedious. Um, Car- Cary Grant, Archie Leach. Yeah, absolutely. Frederick Austerlitz is uh, Fred Astaire. Wow. That's a great one. Tracy Morrow is uh, iced tea. Uh, (laughs) This could go on forever, but we're not going to... Let's let's stop there. We're not going to bore you, but we're not going to stop there, like, completely, because we've got one more film to go, uh, and that film uh, is Robocop. I don't want to fuck with you, Stan. But I got the connection. I got the sales organization. I got the muscle to shove enough of this factory so far up your stupid wop ass that you'll shit snow for a year. Mikey, blow this cocksucker's head off. Ooh, guns, guns, guns. Come on, Sal. Tigers are playing. Two nights. I never miss a game. Um, Robocop's, uh, perhaps Paul Verhoeven's, 
um, most ridiculously violent satire, um, and he's made a few. Um, but in terms of how biting that satire is, um, that film is pretty on the nose. Yeah, I can't think of another kind of major Hollywood release that is so uh, damning in its depiction of corporations and capitalism. Mm. But to the extent that it says that uh, capitalists are criminals, or at the very least they pay criminals, <laughs> and they associate with them very closely. Mm. Yeah. Um, and it's uh, a film that plays into the preoccupations of uh, everything I remember growing up in the eighties, and like when you had in in the film, I mean Paul Verhoeven uses news fake news footage a lot in his films, mm-hmm. um, but the, the little clips that kind of break up the film, um, you know, there's bits about imminent nuclear war, uh, you know, uh, guerrilla factions fighting in kind of like uh, Central American republics, um, all the things that like I remember coming out of the news from America. And then I remember just seeing it all in Robocop and I was like, oh, man, this place is fucked. <laughs> Perhaps I didn't, didn't quite have a handle on the satire as a youth. Now, I, I also, I've, I have talked about this before, um, but my grandma bought me Robocop for Christmas because I asked for it, but she bought it for me, like disregarding the film's 18 certificate. I was 10 years old. <laughs> that is irresponsible. And like at, well, at 10... I didn't quite understand the film's satirical content. Uh, I just liked watching the man get shot in the dick. And the man melt. Yeah, that, yeah the horrible... Like, I always feel like when that guy, the actor, was in ER, I felt like they would just try and find endless things to mutilate him with because of the fact that he was a meal in Robocop and got melted and his head came off when he got hit by a car. Which one was he in ER? He was uh, like a brilliant surgeon, and he lost his arm. Oh, Romano! And the, yeah. yeah, and then the helicopter landed on his head. Yeah, he was. Uh, yeah, I felt sorry for that guy. They really put him through the window. Yeah, yeah, he's probably someone who's going to die by like you know falling down the stairs or something. And I really kind of <laughs> humdrum. Do I, I really hope he's not dead? I'm actually looking off Wikipedia. Um, I, I think he's still alive. Yeah, he's unless he's just gone, and we never know. Uh, we might have to redux this uh, episode. Maybe that helicopter thing was real. Mm, possibly. Um, other than its uh, satirical elements, uh, Robocop is um, still pretty great just as a, a straight action film if you removed all those bits from it. Yeah, I think the, the, the satirical stuff and the comedy, because it is often very very funny and very deadpan, mm. kind of raises it up from being just an action film. But in terms of you know the various sequences like uh, you know the, the initial kind of fight that leads to Murphy's death or uh, when he is kind of going around cleaning up the streets and having fights in factories, it is very kind of kinetic and very well handled. Like uh, Verhoeven was someone who has a, a real good sense of how to stage action and to make it exciting, uh, but not at the expense of his uh, of his kind of satirical preoccupation. I have to say that Robocop features one of my favourite villains of all time. Mm-hmm. Um, Kurtwood Smith, the actor, plays Clarence Boddicker. And I think in, in a lot of in kind of big Hollywood scary films, um, you would have like a like a very muscular man or like someone who's physically threatening. And this guy looks like an accountant at best, <laughs> but he's horrible. And like the way he delivers his lines, and you know the way he kind of says things like "Just give me my fucking phone call," uh, <laughs> just like chill me to my bone, but also make me laugh because it's well camp and really funny. 
the thing that's really impressive about uh, about Kurtwood Smith is he kind of uses that to his advantage. You don't expect that he's going to be kind of as threatening as he is, but when he actually does kind of shoot Murphy, he is just really chilling and calculating. Mm. And uh, there is no remorse in him for anything he does. Yeah, I I kind of um, watched it. Uh, I mean, I watched it a lot as a as a youth. Obviously, uh, it didn't do me any harm. Uh, seriously, let your kids watch horrendously violent films um, at their leisure. But I watched it kind of um, uh, very recently, and accidentally on the DVD, kind of selected the extended version, which I think is about five minutes longer. Um, and it's just the violence extended. They just mm-hmm. like to get it down to an eighteen. <laughs> they had to cut it. Uh, and this is just the, those. So it's basically just the violence, but for much longer. Um, and it's just really unpleasant. I wouldn't recommend watching the uh, extended version. It doesn't really add anything other than more violence, unless you're into that. Does that have the extended version of the penis shooting off scene where he shoots off like fifty guys' dicks? Um, I don't remember, but I'm going to say yes. Because I remember seeing that for the first time, and you get a sense. It's like you know, if you listen to uh, Trey Parker and Matt Stone talk about making Team America, how the puppet sex scene in that they just went like really ludicrous on it because they knew it would never pass. So they put stuff in there that they never intended to do, like you know, heavily scatological stuff, just because they could. When it came back from the senses, they could say, "Okay, we'll cut that stuff mm. and get the stuff that we actually always intended to leave in there." Yeah. That scene where he shoots one guy's dick off, and then suddenly, like fifty guys show up, and they've all got they've all got their dicks hanging out. And he <laughs> just shoots them, and they're just flying everywhere. And then he really awkwardly gets into his car at the end. It's just ridiculous. It's really, really funny, but it seems like something they put in there because you know when it would go to the censors, they'd be able to just have the negotiation and say, "Okay, can we have one dick, <laughs> just one?" And then they'd be like, "That that seems reasonable." Yeah, yeah. And the notes would be like, did you have to shoot off 50 guys' dicks? Um, because, I mean, we'll, we'll let one, maybe two go. And they'd be like, yeah, all right. Um, but it's interesting to hear Verhoeven talk about it because that guy's fucking crazy. Yeah, he's a, he's a, a fabulous uh, interviewer and uh, his commentary tracks are, are legendary stuff. Really entertaining. And because I think he comes from, he seems like someone who is actually quite an intellectual, but in the kind of, you know, getting absolutely drunk on absinthe and going insane kind of sense. It's just that he happens to occasionally get given millions of dollars to make a film. Yeah, I think um, it was his first American film. And yeah. I think, like, when they must have been, like, looking at the dailies, I reckon the studio guys must have been like, Jesus, what the fuck is this guy doing? <laughs> yeah, I think uh, him and Ed Neumeyer, who's the guy who also wrote uh, Starship Troopers for him, they seem to have very complementary uh, sensibilities in that uh, I think they were both very interested in exploring satire in the most commercially viable way. Mm. Uh, and I think Robocop really embodies that. Yeah, and if you want to watch what happens when Paul Verhoeven makes a imperialist satire um, on a big screen, on a big stage with, uh, you know, lots of budget, watch Starship Troopers because it's really great because I don't think he told the cast... I don't think the cast was smart enough to get it. Uh, and it's very interesting watching, watching them play lines that are clearly funny, uh, like incredibly straight, but not even like we're doing this straight and we know it's funny deep down. Uh, I don't think they understood the satire at all. But that's it, we're done. Uh, that's part three 
over and done with. This is building into a mighty list of films, Ed. It is. Uh, I think that people should uh, keep up with what we've added to it on uh, on Letterbox. We're going to have a list there. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think that, uh, yeah, if you just kind of keep checking in with that to see what we're adding to it, it's a fine collection. Yeah, yeah. Um, and if you've uh, enjoyed the show, as always, um, please do not forget to subscribe to us on iTunes or uh, through our website. Uh, and if you do subscribe and you do like the show, please leave us a nice review uh, because we like those and it helps more people find us. Until the next time, it's goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. And goodbye from me. Thank you.